Hello and welcome to episode number 302 of the Armin Show podcast, where it has been interesting. We reach out scientists, authors, creators, people who have thoughts and concepts and themes across time. On this episode, we'll be talking about color. The book's name is Full Spectrum. The author is Adam Rogers. He joins us on the show. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Glad to have you on here. The full title of the book is Full Spectrum, How the Science of Color Made Us Modern. It's about color. I've always liked colors. I guess that's a human trait, but I've definitely liked a variety of them, teal and more green and teal and those kinds of colors. But color is a big chunk of our whole existence as far as sense and what people go to certain lands of visitation for they like architecture that has a certain look this is a cool thing now before we get into the book how did you get into the category of journalism science writing and creating books right well i uh i think that i was always on in my mind as a kid a parallel track of being a writer and thinking that i would be a practicing scientist and when I got to college, I had several parallel and near simultaneous realizations. One of them was that I was really enjoying being a journalist. I was a college journalist. I know a lot of people do that. I worked on my college paper and had a really good time doing that. And I thought it was important, um, important work and also fun. And I also was trying to uh, major in science and found out that first, I was a little bit bored by having to focus on increasing by having to increasingly specialize. And the only future that I could see in science for, for myself was working on a, a, a smaller and smaller part of a smaller and smaller subject. And I was interested in a whole bunch of different things. So that was true. That that's the part that makes me sound awesome. The part that makes me sound that's more true and makes me sound bad is that I also just wasn't very good in the lab. Um, I was like a break things and take too long sort of uh, lab worker. And uh, those two things, all those things together made me think, well, maybe what I really want to be doing is writing about science and learning about science and talking to other people about it um, and doing journalism rather than trying to be a lab, uh, being somebody who works in a lab or even somebody who works in the field um, and trying to do that. So uh, that sort of led me to, um, to a new profession that I hadn't expected, uh, which was being a, being a science journalist, being a reporter who covered science. And so I went to graduate school in that and then uh, and got a job um, out of grad school working for working at Newsweek in the 90s for a, a legendary science journalist named Sharon Begley um, and uh, has started as her fact checker and, and sort of just held on, shackled myself to a journalism desk and stayed uh, as long as I, <laughs> I'm still in. Um, so it's, it's going OK so far, I guess. <laughs> um, and, and book writing. Uh, came as something is it, it, it's weird you know in, in journalism sometimes we think of writing books almost the same way as scientists think about getting their phd the the amount of time often that we spend on the project is about the same the level of research can vary but um but it is a it is in some respects kind of a capstone uh if you pull it off i guess and also you get to a place where if you get interested enough in a subject, it sort of obsesses you. And this is the way that we exercise our obsessions. Um, 
is to, is to say, well, there's enough to say here. You know, there's a long enough story to tell and there's enough material and it's compelling enough and interesting enough to, to me at least. Some people can be a little more casual about their book writing, but I find I've written two now and both of them have been um, essentially personal obsessions that I could imagine spending years and years learning as much as I possibly could about it and then trying to figure out how to synthesize what I had learned and, and, and tell somebody else uh, in, a, in a way that they, I hope, will also be as interested and compelled by the subject as I am. Mm -hmm. Right. This one was a decade or more in the works. One thing that was interesting to me that you said there, when you were in class, you didn't find the interest in like highly specific and then making it down to a small category. I had the same feeling that you're describing at one point. I was like, if I was the one who figured out a certain organic chemistry compound and how it connected something else, I'm, it would be very valuable, but I wouldn't be interested in that. Whereas if I connected a bunch of different concepts, that would be a cool thing. Uh, but for that, you have to go broader. So I kind of like that you mentioned that. I, I think too, like you can, I now, looking back, you know, this is, this is a lot of decades ago, looking back, I think there would have been a way, there are ways to do, to be that kind of scientist. I couldn't see my way clear to do it when I was 20, basically. Um, and the, and my, my mentors in science at the time couldn't see a way clear to do it either. That wasn't the kind of science that they did. So it's certainly possible, you know, there's somewhere out there in the quantum foam of the multiverse, there's maybe a successful scientist version of me um, who actually did that and then occasionally still writes too, I guess, uh, you know, it's hard to track that stuff. But I, I did, I, I think ultimately for me, you know, I was more comfortable in front of a keyboard than a, um, than a Bunsen burner and a, and a Erlenmeyer flask. Although I still like Erlenmeyer flasks. Those are really cool. <laughs> It can be shaken. Things are mixed. Yeah, exactly. Things are mixed like the ideas that we have or colors of paint can be mixed as well. That's right. That's the <laughs> operative metaphor. <laughs> which is which is quite cool. Paint is often in a color. Now, the book you have written that is behind you there also is about color and how it made us modern. What is the general concept that the book presents about color? I think that the thing that, that I didn't know I was going to discover or want to talk about until I was actually in the process of putting it all together was that there are a lot of ways, when we talk about colors, we mean a lot of different things all at once. And the one that, that threads through the book the most prominently is that color is a kind of technology. It's a way that human beings um, look at the, the natural world, look at the existing world around us, the universe, and then change it. We, we, we make something that's not there. Um, and in the case of colors, that's looking out at the colors all around us, the things that we see every day, which are you know, a combination of the, the rain of uncountable photons coming from the sun and cascading through the atmosphere and bouncing off of and through uh, all of the things around us and how those things around us interact with those photons or interact with the wavelengths of electromagnetic energy they're encountering. Those are two different ways of talking about the same thing um, and, and, uh, and create color. And the, those colors uh, are, um, so that's two different things right there, right? That's sort of the chemistry and biochemistry of the surfaces of things around us and also the physics of the, of the photons or the electromagnetic fields around us as well. And then, and then those combine with the 
the, the biochemical meat of our eyes and our brains. Um, and, uh, and that happens in a different way in every different living thing that can perceive light. So what human beings think of as color is the visible spectrum, as Isaac Newton described it first, um, is different for a, a, a bee or a bird or a snake or an archaebacterium. Um, those, the, the, the range of things that constitute colors change. And, but as far as I know, uh, human beings are the only living thing that then takes elements of that natural world and combines them and grinds them up and mixes them and does operations on them, does technic on them to, to make not new colors in the sense that they aren't colors that didn't exist in the universe before, but make colors that didn't exist in a way that we controlled and do things like apply them to our own bodies and apply them to the textiles that we make and the surfaces around us like cave walls or the walls of our houses now. So, so in human history, there ends up being this kind of um, pendulum swing of, uh, of creating new ways to make colors and then using those as a way to understand more of the science of what colors are in some objective scientific, or it's not objective, at least uh, in some physical real sense. And then taking that new knowledge and using that to make new colored things, make new things that have colors, this back and forth swing of history that begins tens of thousands of years ago um, in caves with people grinding up iron oxides to make ochre paint and, and really ends uh, in if, if we all get to go back to movie theaters sometime in a in a in a high resolution uh, high dynamic range laser projected digital movie theater with looking at colors on a wall again um, to where we are today. I like that you mentioned the oxide there. There's a few examples of chemicals along the way that are the basis of color in the book. Where, right? You mentioned that uh, that thousands of years ago. Where did color start to become more mainstream in its usage as far as like it's part of society? It's hard to put a, an anthropological, archaeological finger on that, but I spend a little bit of time in the book in a, a cave on the South African coast called Blombos. And Blombos has been, a, has been a, an archaeological site that's produced a lot of different firsts, like some of the earliest ornamented beads that human beings used or early um, drawings on a surface, you know, scratchings onto a rock to make a design. And when it's difficult because when, when archeologists or anthropologists say this is the first one, what they mean is this is the oldest one we've found. Right. So it doesn't necessarily mean that's where it started. And there could be other examples that exist out there they haven't dug up yet. And there could be a lot more examples that, you know, disappeared that didn't survive 80,000 years of human history. But in Blombos, one of the things that they found about hundred feet down um, as they dug through the sand in the, in the base of this cave uh, were um, a couple of abalone shells. So, you know, an abalone shell is like, it's a big mollusk and it, uh, it the inside of it is like, a, like an oyster or a clam. It's got that nacreous surface. So it's really smooth and a little bit shiny. And in that, in those abalone shells, they found um, rocks that had been either, that had been smoothed to the extent that they fit really well. To, they fit right up against the walls of these abalone shells. And they also found traces of ochre, of iron oxide which comes in a bunch of different colors, depending on other minerals that it's mixed in with and depending on how it's been heat treated, whatever. It's sort of a range of yellow to red to purple, but they found traces of ochre and also traces of trabecular bone. Trabecular bone is the spongy bone like um, near the cartilage or in your spine. It's got kind of blood and fat mixed in with the, with the pores inside, excuse me, inside the bone. 
Okay, so it's it's sticky. Basically, that's the point of trabecular growth stuff. It's sticky. And so what they conclude from this, what these researchers concluded, is that what they'd found was a paint workshop, was tens of thousands of years old, Neolithic humans, um, combining ochre and this gooey stuff to make a, a paste that would be a paint, um, because pigment and a binder is essentially that's what a paint is. That's how human beings make a colored thing that they can apply to a surface. And so what they were using that ochre for is still in play. The color red has a lot of significance culturally for human cultures um, uh, throughout history because it represents blood or menstruation or other spiritual um, important things. If you're a human being, we're living with other human beings. Nobody really knows. Um, did they apply it to themselves? Were they using it for paintings like you would see in later eras at places like Lascaux or something where you, you know, spectacular cave paintings on a wall um, of human beings trying to use art and representation to show what the world looked like outside they saw. But this is the oldest example, not just of applying color in a way, but making it of actually the technology of saying, here we are, we're going to take this rock on the ground and turn it into a color we can apply. So you know, from then we're, we humans are off to the races. <laughs> then that becomes a thing that human beings do everywhere that they possibly can. And, and, and trying to acquire more and more things from the world around them to, if not replicate the colors that they see, at least evoke colors around them. So here's what I mean by that. If you look at, at um, most cave paintings uh, from across cultures and across time, so the, uh, I'm thinking specifically of like Lascaux, but, but you, you know, you and I could name a bunch of different places where they found early human cave paintings, um, both in Asia and in North America, in Europe, everywhere. And the colors that you see on the walls there tend to be in a, in a palette, or what a color scientist I call a gamut, of like black, white, and then sort of red and yellow, the red, yellow, oranges, and maybe some purples. And that's effectively from a, a, a pretty well-known set of minerals. So the, the whites tend to be calcium carbonates, like uh, you know, a marble or a or um, ground up oyster shells or something like that. Um, the uh, the blacks tend to be either carbon, which you get from soot. Uh, so if they're burning, if they're making fire, you get the soot off the uh, off the wood, and you can use that. That's still how most black colors like are charcoal. Today. Charcoal, exactly. Um, or or a magnesium. Um, um, or uh, th there are other minerals that'll do black as well. If you have access to them, people will use them. Um, and then the the other range of colors tend to be the ochres. But um, it's not until much later in human history, like really until uh, the sort of ancient Egyptians, so call that two or 3,000 years ago, that human beings start to make um, synthetic blues or greens. Um, so the Chinese had a couple of blues, the Egyptian blue, Egyptians had a blue, the Maya have a famous blue, and all of them are, tend to be very robust and persistent blue colors. But those Neolithic cave painters didn't seem to have that. But so you look at these cave walls, these cave paintings, and you say, oh, well, that's the gamut of colors. That's the palette, the Neolithic palette. But right outside the caves, you know, they can see trees and they can see flowers and they can see water and they can see sky. So they know because their eyes and brains are built uh -huh. the same way that ours are. They know that there's blues and greens. Right. You know, they know that there's that part of the color space out there. This exists. But, yeah, exactly. And so, the, so the, the question is, did they not, were they not able to capture those colors, which meant that they had a, a gamut of color that didn't represent the full human experience. Or it's possible that they did and that they were just making them with, um, with materials that didn't persist. And we have no way of knowing that. So they could have been, if they were making it out of, I don't know, crushed up flowers or something. I'm making this up, right? Nobody, nobody knows. This is an unanswerable question. Right. Um, and putting it on a wall and then those decayed and, and you know, dried up and fell off and turned to dust. We never know. In, in, in archaeology, they have a, a 
a principle they call taphonomy, T-A-P-H-O-N-O-M-Y. Um, and um, taphonomy is the idea that uh, you, you, we make a mistake if we evaluate what we find by the standards of what we know about human beings today. So there's a taphonomic error potentially here where we don't actually know, we know we're, we're pretty confident that, that those human beings saw the same colors of the world that we human beings do, but we don't actually know if they were capturing them the same way that we do. Um, and so there's a, there's a dissonance between the color technology that they had and the color perception that they had. And, and in a way that, that dissonance still exists today. Um, I've been talking to some folks who, are, who work on the, the, this generation and the next generation of ultra high definition screens with different um, 4K and 8K color representations. Like if you're, if you're a TV nerd or you, know, you, you buy a new television, you get the, the biggest, the widest color gamut possible on that, on that TV. And what that means is it's able to capture a bigger and bigger amount of the colors that exist physically, that are physically possible, that are scientifically right. possible. Um, but it does that by using just three primary colors instead of all of the, the, the eight primaries or whatever that Newton identified as primary colors or the four primaries that um, people who've done color printing for hundreds of years have used CMYK as primary colors. So trying to figure out how to take our our limited technology, more and more unlimited, but still limited technology, and capture this vast panoply of color that we see in the world around us, in the windows, in our outside our windows, or if we go out into the world. And in fact, to take into account the idea that there's individual variation in the colors that you see and the colors that I see a little bit, and there's a lot of variation in the colors that other animals would see that you could describe as a color if we had slightly different biochemistry, um, uh, slightly different proteins and photoreceptors in our eyes. That was a long rant, sorry. But that's the kind of stuff I've been obsessed with for a while. What was described as a long rant there is very informative, and I would never describe it as such. <laughs> <laughs> that is the material. That's true. The different viewing that some other animals have than we have. Also, I like that concept you bring up that if it's something that is gone, even if it existed, we wouldn't know about it because that's all we have to work with later on. And I, I think you see that now. One way to think about that is that I spent a lot of time in the book talking about pigments that make a color white because I got kind of obsessed specifically with this, with this a mineral called titanium dioxide, mm -hmm. which um, titanium as an element was discovered in the late 1700s, but, but it, it didn't get made into a pigment until about 1912. And, and it, to the extent that any one pigment kind of defines the, industrial modern era, it's that. Because titanium dioxide allowed, not only allowed people who work with colors, painters and others, to make a very bright, very opaque white, but also to combine it with other pigments and make those very bright and very opaque. And it replaced, so it shows up, it's one of the things that makes like all the colors of automobiles in the 20th century possible, for example. But it also shows up at a moment when uh, human society finally agreed that it had to replace lead white as the basic white pigment that had been used since the ancient Romans, at least, um, because it's toxic, because it's lead. But that was present in everything. The whole lead paint thing that Americans were dealing with and Europeans were dealing with um, for hundreds of years, I guess, but certainly came to a head like in the 1970s was because of lead white as an ingredient in paint. So, um, so I, I, but, the, but the thing that changes then is that, um, for example, when titanium dioxide first became available as, a, as an artist's pigment, um, artists started using 
both in different ways to try to do experiments to see which one would work. And in fact, even before titanium dioxide, um, when uh, like Vincent van Gogh would paint different versions of his paintings with different pigments that showed the same color to see how they would react, to see how they dried, to see how they responded on, on a canvas. His letters to his brother, the, the kind of famous letters between Vincent van Gogh and his brother Theo, most of the letters are him basically asking for more pigments because they're expensive and he doesn't have any money because he's not selling any paintings. And uh, and so he's got a few where he's like, look, I'm, I'm working with zinc white, which is another white pigment, you can do zinc white. I'm working with zinc white. I, I painted the same painting with zinc white and lead white. The, the zinc white doesn't dry as well. I need more lead white. Like he's trying to compare not just the um, vis visual properties of the pigments, which are which vary slightly, but also the properties that they have on the brush as he paints with them and the properties they have as they dry. So this, this is again, how the, the, the chemistry of color essentially has an impact on the, the physics of color and also the, our perception of color as well. And, and we wouldn't, you know, in the same way that if the if uh, people who painted the caves at Lascaux had a blue and a green, we just don't know about it because it's not on the walls anymore, which they probably didn't, by the way. But like I said, that's totally speculation. <laughs> but um, in, in that same way, like, there are kind of paintings that do and don't exist with different color technology. Um, and then, the, and that changes again when, um, when people uh, like Piet Mondrian and modernists start to use titanium dioxide whites in their work in the 20s. I like that when you figure out things in this way, understanding how things came about, they make much more sense than after the fact, when you look back like, oh, suddenly at this period, blue is more popular. Maybe because it just started to appear, or let's say white as a base, we forget that before that it was not. And then right after that, suddenly there's like an expansion and let's try out a bunch of options. And now the artist is like a scientist in that way, checking out the properties. And in fact, that's always been true that, that you use that phrase, the artist is working like a scientist. And in, um, in the Middle Ages, in the, in the West, European Middle Ages, um, artists, couldn't go buy paint. So they also, the part of what an artist was expected to know how to do was to go buy pigments and mix them into a paint and mix them using using other kind of binders. So would you use egg yolk? Would you use egg white? Would you use, would you paint directly onto a wet surface as opposed to a dry one? Uh, the, the knowledge of being able to mix those pigments into linseed oil, which comes from the same plant, it comes from flax, the same plant that makes linen. So it's a very valuable plant. Once you learn how to farm flax, if you can farm flax, you can turn that into linen cloth, a textile, and you can also take the oil and make linseed oil. And linseed oil is very good for preserving wood if you boil it. And it's also really good for mixing with pigments and making a paint. So you end up with all of these sort of economic uh, values that then combine to make more and more available colors. The people trying things always in my mind are at the forefront because they'll fail with something, something won't stick properly, it won't stick to a canvas, this one's brighter, this one's not, they're doing all the work. And then later on, oh, that's a cool painting they did. But behind the scenes, oh, here's a failed one, I throw this away, this one didn't work, I couldn't get this one, I email, I message somebody for pigments, I made a contact, can I get this pigment? I need the other pigment. That's right. There's a lot of back and forth. One thing that came to mind was titanium dioxide. I like the story you represented about Cornwall and its position as a mining location once they found what was there, which makes it interesting because, oh, we found something and now that's the next movement that will occur. Um, what are some notable countries along the way of the 
color expansion that has occurred in past hundreds of years. That's an interesting way to think about that. So, um, well, the the Egyptians, the ancient Egyptians did a lot of color technology and color science, doing things like um, grinding up gemstones and combining them with other materials that they had to make the kind of colors that they would then apply to the tomb walls that you still see today, for example. Part of that is because really the places that we would identify as being important for the technology of color tend to be the places that we'd identify as being important to trade routes as well. Because in the same way that like, I don't know, like I was taught in kind of, you know, high school history, the trade routes are about things like spices and silk and, uh, and farm goods and things like that, right? Saffron. Um, yeah, saffron, right. Or, or um, you know, uh, whatever you're, or like, you know, finding uh, potatoes or like bringing some plant from the new world back to Europe, okay. that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Right. But, um, but in the same cargo holds that we're carrying uh, sugar or uh, actually sugar is probably a bad example because that was all involved in slave trade too and had a whole bunch of bad implications. But in the same cargo holds that were full of spices from Asia, let's say, mm-hmm. they were also full of pigments. They were full of the materials that would make colors as well. And, and, and in fact, colors, the, the material to make colors and colored objects were critical to like the Silk Road. So uh, because of my age and because I um, come from the United States, most of what I was taught about like the period between uh, the kind of fall of Rome and um, the, the Middle Ages in Northern Europe is that like that was really just like white people scrabbling in the mud to kill each other. But in fact, like the problem with that vision of history, and I don't think any, I don't think people are taught this anymore. I think that's just because I'm old. But like if you just rotate the globe kind of one quarter counterclockwise, you're looking at like what was actually going on in the world, which was this incredible, you know, 1200 years of, of active trade and politics and culture centered around the twin poles, basically of Peking and the Abbasid Empire and Iraq. Right. And that was the Silk Road is uh, is like one third of the planet trading goods and competing to have the best trade goods. And one of the things that they competed on was what how cool the colors they had were. So like a world changing technology that uh, Chinese culture during the Tang era basically came up with about the 800s, 700s, 800s um, was being able to take mud that they scooped out of the ground and heat it up hot enough so that not only did it become solid, not only did it become earthenware, not only did it become ceramic, but it became porcelain. And porcelain was valued for its material properties. It's very light, it's very strong, it's beautiful. You can make beautiful shapes out of it. You can trade it if you have ships because it's really heavy, you don't wanna take it across land. So the maritime Silk Road becomes this route to trade through Southeast Asia and into the Arab world of porcelain, but also how you can color it. And one of the things that the Chinese had was in the North, they had these kilns that were using kaolin, a material that they had in plenty because of the geology of China to make beautiful bright white porcelain. And this became one of the most valued materials in the, in, in the Silk Road era world. In the South, because they had a slightly different kind of mud, basically, when they dug down to it, 
instead of making beautiful white porcelain, they made beautiful green porcelain. So there's this competition between beautiful white and beautiful green and the cultural moment that says, well, the thing that we do now culturally, if you're really cool, is we drink this new stuff that we call tea. And if you're really drinking tea, if you're like a good tea drink, so it became like this connoisseurship thing. So just like if you say like, well, listen, you can't possibly drink excellent red wine from the Languedoc without the specific shaped wine glass or something, right? Which is mostly nonsense, but fine. It's fun. <laughs> it's, part of the, it's part of the theater of wine. In the same way, in the, in the 800s, they were saying like, well, if you're really drinking tea and you're doing tea right, you know, if you got great tea and you're drinking it right, depending on what kind of tea you have, you really need this whiteware from, north, from the north or this celadon, this greenware from the south. So it becomes very sought after. And in fact, it becomes like the kind of gift that you give the new ambassador from the Abbasid empire. You send a bunch of pieces of this whiteware. And then being able to find a blue glaze to put on top of that or to put on top of ceramic or porcelain that you've glazed white becomes this point of competition where like, the, and this is still an open question in the archeology span and anthropology of the era and the history of the era, did the Chinese ceramicists invent the blue for blue and white first that then the Abbasids copied essentially, probably using their culture of glass making to come up with their own blue and their own white to put underneath it as a field, or did they ind independently invent a blue to compete with the Chinese? And you can only figure that out by looking at these fragments that are like locked up in the drawers of the British Museum or doing digs in the, in the southern part of what used to be the Abbasid Empire. It's all, you know, that's based on more than color, but color becomes this, this thing that it helps the Silk Road expand, it makes the Silk Road possible. And then as the, um, as the, the, as the Arab cultures of the Abbasid Empire and then later also become the kind of arbiters, translators, explicators, amplifiers, and redoers and correctors of the kind of science and philosophy that the Greeks and Romans had been doing because they're the ones who got the last of those documents because they were lost to the rest of the world. Um, they begin to understand all of the ways that Aristotle and his philosophical and intellectual descendants got optics wrong, didn't understand how colors in the universe work. So now they're working on like, okay, we see colored light. How do we perceive that? What's a rainbow? How do rainbows work? How do colors mix? How do, when we have, when we have the material of color, we mix that one thing happens when we see colors mix in the, in the air around us and then they mix another thing happens. We don't understand the difference between those two things. It's those Arab scientists who begin to figure that out and who do the math to figure out what refraction is to initiate the kind of optics that then they transmit to the North as Northern Europe is starting to come out of its centuries long, we're fighting over mud um, era and start to try to understand the world around them a little bit more. And it's that work that from the 1200s for the next 400 years, eventually gets, finally gets to, you know, this well-read kid from Oxford, Isaac Newton, who goes on the run from a plague, from a pandemic, right? Has to go on lockdown from a pandemic in 1665. And in his mother's upstairs where he makes a little study, pokes a hole in his, famously pokes a hole in the shutters, lets a beam of white sunlight in, puts it through a couple of prisms, sees that that breaks up into a bunch of different kinds of light, understands what the Arab scientists and his predecessors in Europe have done and realizes that like, yes, all those colors are containing white light. And in fact, they're probably separated by something that maybe is like a wavelength or maybe is like a particle, we don't know which, and names those colors and the specific names that, be, that starts to give rise to sort of the, the modern era of optics and the physics of light. Mm. I like that, yeah, white is the base and then it breaks into the other colors and then analysis of how it uh, separated into those was very informative and oh, we need to 
bridge these gaps if we're missing any along the way. One thing that comes to mind is that colored objects in the trade routes along, let's say, the Silk Road, they're used as like status symbols or this is more valuable than that. Did you see other meanings to colors as you looked at how colors were used? Yeah, that's really important um, in trying to understand the cultural values that get ascribed to those colors and to specific colors. Um, so they, and they vary over time as fashion varies and they vary depending on what kind of natural philosophy is the dominant one in a given culture. I thought it was interesting, for example, again, in the Tang era, um, women with enough money would wear a lot of cosmetics. Another place that colored material becomes very valuable is for cosmetics, primarily for women. Um, in the Tang era, Tang era women would wear uh, white on their faces and yellow on their foreheads. The yellow was usually orpiment. The white was usually lead white, which is highly toxic. It's a bad thing, but they would do it. And in fact, that lead white as the, as the base for women's cosmetics lasts all the way through from the Tang era through the Middle Ages and into Elizabethan England. So if you if you see paintings of Queen Elizabeth and you see that she's got that bright white, that sort of Harlequin face, where she's white with the with the red patches on her cheeks mm -hmm. and the bright red lips, like that's all lead white that, that has come up through history as being women's cosmetics. Um, and in fact, uh, part of the reason that she had such high a high hairline might have been that she was that with lead toxicity. That's one of the things that happens to make sure make your hair fall out. Um, so, uh, so you see, you know, different colors become like the thing that women are supposed to use. Or, or you know, I'm, I'm making scare quotes with my fingers because, of course, all of that is cultural has cultural valences and depends on you know women's status in society and all that stuff. Um, but you see, like different colors having different meanings. Uh, uh, it, from culture to culture, and they'll they'll change. The alchemists um, of Europe, the, the the first round of alchemists, and then and the I guess that counts as the second round of alchemists. The alchemists in the Middle Ages who thought they were doing the same work. The alchemists in Europe in the Middle Ages who thought they were doing an extension of the work that the alchemists in Alexandria in the in the year fifty, you know, common era, were doing. Although there's probably a lot of discontinuities between the work, ascribed different colors describe different meanings to different colors as part of the work, capital W, that they were doing. You would try to move the materials you were working with through a prescribed set of colors where black represented um, decomposition and red represented the reemergence of the phoenix. And they were all kind of coded language for the different chemical steps that they thought they were taking to take a base metal and turn it into the magical stuff that would give them eternal life and change lead into gold and that kind of thing. But the colors that, that so they, they gave those kind of colors meaning. And at the same time, the, the Kabbalists um, of early Judaism, and that, that's a kind of mysticism that's lasted through, um, through the beginning of, from, the, from the beginning of the Talmud through today even, um, ascribe different colors to the different, to the, the map um, um, called the Sephiroth, which is like the map of the, the, the map of creation and the mind of God. Um, each of the sections of the Sephiroth, like wisdom and justice and stuff like that, they all have a different colors attached to them as well. So you can kind of do math with the colors in the same way that you could do math with like the geometry and math of the Torah, ascribing different numbers to different letters, that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, you see that all the way through even today, where the idea in the West is that a, um, that a, a wedding dress, if a, if a person's getting married and they're going to wear a dress, that that should be white, because that in, in some Western cultures represents virginity and purity. Whereas in 
a lot of Eastern cultures, a white represents grief and death. It's what you wear at a funeral. Um, and those have really different emotional valences, of course, same color, same material, same, you know, white silk, right? Um, but they but they have entirely different meanings. So, um, and, and that's been true all along is that you, you get these colors and they're, they're very meaningful. I guess a classic example of that is purple being representative of royalty and wealth because the prime pigment that was used to make purple was made from these little tiny uh, snails, these mollusks found only in the Mediterranean and you had to grind up like thousands of them just to get a small amount of it. So it's very expensive to make. Um, and so only very wealthy people could have it. So purple became the signal if you wore purple that you were rich. And then because of that, it became something that only powerful people were allowed to wear. So at a certain period in ancient Rome, only like senators are allowed to wear the purple. It becomes something that only a pope is allowed to wear at a certain point. Uh, so, uh, and as soon as there are other ways to make purple, you know, as soon as somebody creates a synthetic mauve pigment, which was by some counts the first synthetic pigment that human beings made, that totally changes, right? Well, now it's cheap. Now it doesn't mean anything anymore. Um, so the color has changed, the, co the, the, the color changes its cultural symbolism because the technology to make it changes. Right. I like how you pair the technology and the use of colors along the way because you can't separate them and just assume that colors showed up in some form along the way. That's People right. had to put in a lot of effort to get them visible. There's a person I've had a guest on before, Mary Mullen. She's from Scotland, costume designer and works with fabrics and has great sense of colors and whatnot. And at a recent um, project with Scottish Ballet where they, I believe it was that, where they used a certain color of blue that this one person is known. I might be butchering this slightly, but there's a certain color of blue that was very specific. This one person uses this exact like Photoshop uh, pound sign, FF something, whatever, uh, color of blue for everything he does his whole existence. So it's like um, a strong message. It's almost like uh, individuals can attach identity to certain colors. I always liked cyan and aquamarine and whatnot when I was younger. And um, we, we identify with them strongly because the world we see around us is heavily uh, color-based. Uh, what should the average person know about um, color or can they use it in some way to motivate themselves? Is there any purpose that can be added to color? Huh. Like, like writing with different colors or putting more colors in the room or things like that. This is like a tangent I, from the book, but yeah, I, <laughs> this is one of those, it's, it's funny. I, I had the similar experience with the, with the booze book too, where people would say like, okay, well, what's the best thing to drink then? And back then I, I would have said, you know, the, if I got one, le if I acquired one lesson from writing that book, it was that people should drink the thing that they like. That that was really important because there there weren't really objective standards for any of this. Um, there's this there's a an interplay because this is all what we're really talking about is a matter of the senses, mm -hmm. a matter of how we apprehend how we use the the meat in our heads to take input from the world around us and turn it into a model of that world that mm -hmm. we can then live in in our minds. And the thing about the senses is that they are. A, a beautiful but imperfect way of apprehending a, a world that objectively exists, right? We're not, you know, we're not in the matrix. You and I aren't plugged into a, to a thing that's making a world in our heads. We're in a, we're in a universe 
and we have to somehow take that in and, and make something out of it mm-hmm. <laughs> in our brains to, to, have, to have cognition. And the means that we have to do that are great, but not perfect. Mm-hmm. And they're a little bit different from person to person. So the room that you walk into and find beautiful because of its colors is not the room that I walk into and find beautiful because I, I literally perceive it as a different room. It's a little bit different. And that comes from just my training and my background and my experience and what I know about colors and design and the same for you, but also because our eyes are a little bit different and the, dis- the distribution and the number of red, green and blue photoreceptors in, the, in our retinas are slightly different in different places. And they're neurologically, they're, they're, and they're neuros, neurophysically wired to each other in slightly different ways. And the neurobiology of how they're all talking to each other and talking to the first node, the first synapse in our brain on the way to the visual cortex is slightly different. So we're, we're literally seeing different worlds. And I think, so here, this, this now becomes metaphoric because the brain is not really well understood even by the best neuroscientists in the world. Um, that actually fills me with a lot of hope weirdly, knowing that your world's a little bit different than mine, and my world's a little bit different than yours, but that we can still talk about our worlds with each other. We, have, we can share some language to talk about it. We both know that there are some differences, and it's in those differences that we can find our own humanity. Say, oh, you see it like that, I see it like that. That's interesting. You know, Here's where we can figure out how we're both seeing the same thing and different things. That's what makes us human, and we can connect on that level to find a set of colors that both of us can agree are pleasing, even if we don't quite see them the same way, even if we use the same names for them, especially if we don't use the same names for them. You mentioned cyan and aquamarine, <laughs> and, I, and it would be interesting because the blue-green region of color space in terms of human perception is a very complicated one for a lot of different reasons, both neurophysiological and also linguistic. Um, I'm, I, I wonder if you, if you secretly picked like color swatches from Pantone or from Moncel and said, okay, well, that one's cyan, that one's aquamarine, and put them in front of me. I wonder if I would say that one's the cyan one and that's the aquamarine one, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Or if you would say like, no, it's the exact opposite because those are very close colors to each other, right? Right. Um, uh, cyan is sort of a very, like a classic blue green because it's used in color printing. Aquamarine probably has maybe a little bit more of a green to it. I don't know. We, like, but but it, those kind of differences in language and color use and color perception are so vast that there are entire realms of linguistics and neuroscience dedicated to trying to unpack them. And I find that wonderful. I find that the idea that something that you and I would both say is so intrinsic and inimical to our, to what, how we see the world, literally how we see the world, what colors they are, is actually poorly understood, is an edge of science, is a, is a world that's not that people haven't figured out yet. I find that wonderful. I love finding that kind of stuff. I think that's beautiful. Right. I like multiple concepts here. Good thing they're all still in my mind. One is empathy, highly valuable between us. The people who I will connect with probably forever will be the individuals where it's calm and there is communication, sharing of our thoughts or knowledge. It's like calm and it can happen. There's growth which is not, it's uncommon enough to be a cool thing to look for. Yes. That's one. The cyan, I, I just wanted to throw in, in the late 90s, I was in high school and or middle school, something around that time. And for Microsoft Q basic programming, we did, cyan was one of the 16 colors. So if you did like a, write 16 letters in a row with different colors alternating from one to 16, cyan would be like number four or something. So pretty cool stuff mm-hmm. there. And then, the 
third point I want to bring up was in the end of the book, you gave an acknowledgement to Carl Zimmer, who I've had on the show before, a wonderful uh, science yeah. writer, and uh, his impact and others' impacts. Who are some people in the writing or journalism or science writing space who have been influential to you? Oh, wow. Um, one of the nice things about having been doing this for a long time is I've actually gotten to meet a lot of these people also. So I, I have, um, some of them have become friends even, which has been delightful to me. And some of them are just people who I've read at the distance. But I will say, you know, you mentioned Carl. I, the thing about Carl is as, as brilliant as a science writer as he is, because he is, he's also like the menschiest person in the world. And in fact now, so I've written two books and in both of those, Carl has just out of hand said like, oh, you're working on a book on this here. You might want to look at this article. And it's turned out to be like a critical, like a thing that I built a chapter around. <laughs> you know, he says, he's like, this is cool. It's like, yeah, it just gets a cast off. It's this a Zimmer will be cast the key off. piece. Yeah. He just is like, oh, this is cool. I'm like, uh, yeah, that's pretty cool, dude. Yes. Thank you. Um, so anyway, so Carl, I, I have, uh, I, I've, in both of my books, I've, I often have, if I get into trouble, like writing trouble, like how do I want to say this? How do I want to write about this thing? I know I want to write about it. What do I want to do? How do I get there? Sometimes I imagine, um, in, I imagine a, uh, like a scale, a spectrum, if you will, between uh, Mary Roach and David Quammen, where, where I'm like, okay, how would Mary handle this? And how would David handle it? If I can imagine it, like, you know, David would go spend six months sailing up river with this guy to find the one, uh, you know, the one lemur that the guy like invented basically or whatever. And, and that would be the expedition, you know, and, and, and then, and like Mary would do this beautiful, like hilarious trip to the lab where the, where everything was like funny and wonderful. And you just learn stuff you had no idea existed and, and you share her wonder. Um, and like, just sort of in, in repertorially and tonally, how would they both handle them? Like, and I would try to position myself along for any given module, like along that scale, like more, a little more Kwame, a little less Mary. How do I, where do I want to be here? So both of them, both as science writers um, are really influential on me, I think. Um, to the extent that I would say, I mean, I don't know, that's maybe ascribing a lot more of my work. Um, I think uh, uh, Clive Thompson is a friend and has been a reader on, on my stuff and he his mind is just a wonderful place to be and he sees kind of slightly orthogonal ways to talk about things and ways to think about things um, and he's been just a, a great friend and another person who has who's cast off ideas have <laughs> come to me occasionally and I'm turn and have been great stories like I'm not going to write about this maybe you want to I'm like yeah that's brilliant thank you Clive that's that's great um so that's there's them I think uh um Deborah Blum writes a, a, a very nice comment about the book on the back of it, on the back as a blurb. And, and she's just a, a wonderful writer combining history and, and science, trying to, using science as a way to understand history, to understand what happened, to not just say like, oh, this happened as a matter of politics and, and people um, sort of negotiating with each other, but also the science changed. Um, and so that's how you can understand that these moments in time, these trends. Um, a person who I have never met, but it, have found totally influential um, is a, uh, a science historian named James Burke, who in the 70s, 80s, did a, a TV series for the BBC that also aired in the United States called Connections, that was about how scientific innovation led to questions in other fields that would then lead to more innovation, that it wasn't a linear path, that in fact, this was all about human beings trying to solve other problems and using science from other fields to, to, to bootstrap toward the future, basically. And, uh, and, and 
I, I, I honestly don't think my work would be what it is if I hadn't watched Connections when I was a kid um, as a show. So Burke is in there too. Uh. Um, I mean, there, you know, there's there, there are a ton more, of course, but those are the those are the ones I think about a lot. I like the spectrum concept because I use a variation of that for different categories of what I do, not always with two people, but sometimes between like a certain version of myself versus this version. How far do I want to go this day? Mm -hmm. That's a cool concept that I don't think I've ever actually heard that way, but some variation of that I do. Yeah, it's turn, cool. You turn the dials. Right. <laughs> I'm going to go 70%. That's right. <laughs> that way. Tomorrow might be a 30% day. That's pretty good. It switches. Um, uh, one last thing is you're in the uh, San Francisco area, Bay Area. Um, do you like it there? Has that been uh, helpful? Do you plan to stay there? What are your thoughts about that? I do like it. Um, I'm a Californian my whole life. I lived on I lived on the Acela Corridor for about 10 years. From I, I, I lived in Boston, New York, and Washington. Um, and then came back to California. I grew up in Los Angeles, and, and uh, I do. I think California is uh, really pretty wonderful. Um, we have a set of problems that are significant in this state right now, and I think that they're important because they're not sui generis. They're not just California problems. California, throughout the history of its existence, has prefigured problems that are going to be everyone else's problems in this country for 150 years. Um, and that's not going to stop. So all the problems we have with climate and the disasters that are associated with it, the problems that come from homelessness and other issues of, of poverty um, that, are, I, to my mind, really go back to the fact that we've been very bad at building houses for people for about 100 years, um, primarily for, I think, racist reasons, as well as some economic ones, which are, of course, tied up with each other. Uh, and those are all things that every other state is going to be dealing with. And we're just dealing with them first. So I'm hopeful that we figure out ways to handle them first. But I also love it here. That's cool. This is wonderful. Adam, I would like to thank you for having joined on this episode of the show, bringing a lot of knowledge. And in some ways, we have similar thought process, but glad to have you on. My pleasure. Thank you for doing it. I, I really appreciate it. I hope, uh, I hope people listen to it and like it. I hope so as well. Mm -hmm.